Hello, salams and welcome. You're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast with your hosts, me, Yasmin Lee and Zara Chowdhury. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication dedicated to travel, culture and history from a Muslim perspective. In this series, we'll be talking to writers, artists, historians and a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Thank you for joining us. I'm on my own this week, minus Yasmin. In this episode, I speak to Wafa Oshish. Wafa was born in Algeria and moved to Canada at the age of 10 after the civil war broke out. She now runs an organization called Burgundy Roots, where she organizes retreats in Jamaica, working alongside the Muslim and Rasta communities there. We speak about everything from the Algerian national hero of Caribbean origin to the Rasmus community of Jamaica. We also discuss whether Muslim travellers are compromising on experience for the sake of halal food and the negative impact of big island resorts. So Wafa, I was wondering if you could start by telling us why you chose Jamaica as the destination for your retreats and how it all came about. So that's a very good question. I mean, to be able to answer that, I would have to go back at least 10 to 15 years almost. Um, I mean, I was in grade 10 when 9-11 happened. And so I, I remember being in school and having no clue. I had never even heard of the Twin Towers before. Little did I know that how much it would shape my life and all of our lives. Yeah. Um, immediately right after. But I went through a soul searching phase around, you know, I would say grade 11, 12, first year, second year university. And I went through a phase during my first year in university where I didn't want to be recognized as a Muslim. I was still practicing the faith. I just felt that, you know what, maybe if I wear my scarf like this, I can get away with looking like a little white girl hippie and yeah. things will be much easier. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I would, um, well, yes, yeah, kind of. I would say yes and no. What was interesting is that I remember spending a lot of time in this specific neighborhood in Toronto. Um, it's called Kensington Market. A Kensington Market is highly gentrified today and it's not what it used to be back in the day. Okay. But I would spend some time at this revolutionary bookstore. It was Rasta owned. And, you know, they had documentaries about how 9-11 was an inside job. They had documentaries about the end of the world, about the political system, about slavery. It was just, you know, people would get together and they would talk. Um, the back of it, there was a little garden for people to sit down and hang out after work. And I would just sit and spend time and listen and get to know people. And I remember one day I was walking down the street, Kensington, I think I must have been coming out of the Jamaican bakery and I heard somebody say, Muhammad, Muhammad. And I'm thinking in my head, who's saying the prophet's name? <laughs> so I turn around and there comes this Rasta right behind me and he looks at me and I, point at, I pointed at myself wondering, like, are you talking to me? And he said, Muhammad. I said, yes. He said, well, are you not a follower of prophet Muhammad? I said, yes, I am. Matter of fact, I am. He's like, well, how are you today, Muhammad? <laughs> so wow. I kind of just chuckled. I thought it was funny. I didn't get offended. I didn't feel no ways about it. I said, I'm well. And then we started talking. And again, same conversation. And I remember in that conversation, he said to me, he said, you should be proud of being a Muslim. And look at me. I'm a Rasta. 
and I live in the system, but I have my own culture, I have my own beliefs, and no system, no Babylonian system is going to tell me what to do. And as a Muslim, you should be proud, you should dress like a Muslim, and you should love yourself, and you should big up yourself all day, every day. Wow. <laughs> you just gave me proper dawah from <laughs> Arabi. Yeah, without being a Muslim. A, a Muslim. Without being a Muslim. So we all know as Muslim as Muslims, when someone outside the faith needs to to give you some reminders, I don't know about you, but I get a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, but, you do. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like, okay, now they know too. It's not like they don't know. <laughs> you know. So I just I had to smile. I really enjoyed the conversation. I got past my ego, I got past what he I was able to just take it all in and I loved it. And so that conversation, along with the other ones that I was having, I uprising, which is the bookstore I was spending a lot of time at, had me researching Rastafarianism, had me researching um, the Caribbean, had me researching Jamaica, roots reggae music. Not because I wanted to convert to Rastafarianism. I was very content being a Muslim. Alhamdulillah, I still am. But I loved the confidence. And I said to myself, I need to go to the roots of that. I want to know more. So I started studying and listening and watching. And sure enough, an opportunity came where I wanted to go and volunteer abroad. I wanted to go to Peru. Um, I went to a small, tiny village, 17 hours north of Lima. Uh, it was a 17-hour bus ride. I went. It took quite a lot of convincing with parents, but alhamdulillah, they said yes. Now, because I'm a little greedy, I said to myself, on the way back from Peru, I'm going to stop by Jamaica. And I'm not going to tell my parents. So I did it. I stopped by Jamaica on the way back because I was fascinated. I said, I need to go to this place and find out. Um, now, a friend of mine um, had an aunt who had, had owned a guest house in Jamaica. And so all I knew is that I was getting picked up at the airport and I was going straight to Negril, which is a fairly touristy town. And I didn't leave Negril. I really only stayed in Negril. Um, and... So it began with Jamaica. I loved the trip. I had an amazing time, but I still felt I hadn't explored all of Jamaica. I had barely scratched the surface. And having gone there about 15 times today, I can still tell you I'm still scratching the surface. Oh, wow, really? Even after the Absolutely. 15 times? Absolutely. It's a beast of an island. And, you know, it's, and I took a break from it because after that Jamaica trip, I got caught. I just told my mom and dad, I'm sorry, guys. I had to do some exploring. You know, alhamdulillah, it was cool. They forgave, they understood. Yeah. And the following summer, I went to Egypt and backpacked through Palestine. Oh, wow. And I went to Egypt. I did a program, a five-week program to study Arabic and Tajweed. And then afterwards, backpacked with my best friend through Palestine and Israel. And had an amazing time. And I guess I had put Jamaica on hold for a good five years because during those five years from the time I went to Egypt... Every summer I would go back. It was either Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Turkey. Um, I went and I studied for six months in Damascus. I had some time off between my undergrad and teacher's college. And so I went. And, you know, fast forward after my first trip to Jamaica, fast forward six years, I went back for the second time because a friend was showing me photos of when he was training in Jamaica. I said to myself, wow, I haven't. I haven't thought about Jamaica in a long time. I need to go back. I went home. I booked a ticket. And uh, a day before I was leaving for my trip, my friend told me, you know what? I had, I'm going to be in Jamaica as well. I'll take you around. And so 
we connected in Jamaica. He introduced me to a brother named Brother Rashid in St. Elizabeth. And Rashid was the first Muslim, Jamaican Muslim I had met in Jamaica. Right. And he was, when I was like, he was dressed like a Muslim. He had his beard, he had his kufi, he dressed, he was visibly Muslim. And I was like, wow, okay, there's Muslims here? So we left Negril and drove straight to St. Elizabeth. If you know anything about Jamaica, it's got quite a few parishes, and St. Elizabeth is considered to be the breadbasket of Jamaica. They grow most of the food, so it's deep country. And you know something? We drove around, and the landscape was beautiful. We stopped by a little shop on the side of the road, and we ate some fresh watermelon. Brother Rashid got stopped for a speeding ticket, <laughs> and... He got pulled over, went over to the police officer, came back in the car, and we asked him, so what, what did the officer say? <laughs> Rashid said, well, he said to me that if I wanted, I could give him a little bribe and he would let it go. But I said to him, Muslims not take no bribe, so write it down, son, write it down. <laughs> no <way. laughs> so I said, I'm in good hands. This is going to be the best trip of my life. It's yeah, these little you things know you could trust him after said. that. A hundred percent. I said, I can take it easy. And, you know, we drove through the country again. This is all in one trip, the first like three hours. We drove deeper in the country and we stopped outside this house just on the side of the road. And the house had this little wooden banner. It was blue and it was written, handwritten in white and paint. It said, God is God and God not sleep. Wow. God is God and God not sleep. I said, wow, this is this is my kind of place. I'm loving this. And it was the most beautiful trip. We visited the masjid in St. Elizabeth. We visited this Muslim brother who lives in the hills, and he's a beekeeper. We went to see him. We went to waterfalls, beaches, ate fresh fruits, sat outside the mosque, listened to the adhan and to some reggae music playing in a local bar down the road. I said, I love this place. I really love your answer because you clearly didn't pick Jamaica on a whim. Like You put so much thought into this. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of people have so many misconceptions about Jamaica. Even sometimes I'd say I'm going to Jamaica and people will say, mm, Jamaica, like they, they yeah. gave me these eye rolls. And remember, when I think Jamaica, I think the Rasta who called me Muhammad. <laughs> I'm not yeah. thinking cold beers. I'm not thinking party town. I'm not thinking sex tourism. I'm not thinking any of that. I mean, all of that I came to learn when I got there. But initially, it was just this beautiful island that captivated me. The spirit of the people very much captivated me. Because in a lot of ways, it reminded me of Algeria. You see, the Caribbean diaspora reminds me a lot of North Africans because we're not considered to be quite Arabs. Because of where we are in, in, in the mm -hmm. Arab world, we speak a dialect that only Moroccans and, and, and um, Tunisians will understand. Maybe Libyans, right? Now you mix that with the fact that I'm of Berber heritage and Berbers are an Afro-Asiatic Asiatic group of people that are not Arab at all. They were there prior to Arab invasion. And so right. I felt this connection to the Caribbean because I've never myself felt fully Arab. You know, when I yeah. traveled throughout Syria and Lebanon and Jordan, I loved it. I felt part of me felt a connection to it, but I didn't feel it was fully me. And, you know, I see it with the temper that Jamaicans have, with their attitude, even their sense of humor. And I remember it was clear to me that I connected with the place because whenever I would go and start talking to the locals, right away after two to five minutes of conversing with them, would always, I'd crack a joke or they'd crack a joke and I'd laugh at their joke and they would always say, Wafa, you're not easy, you know. You're not easy means you're not easy, as in you get it. <laughs> you know what's up. 
if I say something yeah. to them, they might say, you're not easy because they know that I understand the culture probably a little bit more than another foreigner that's come into the country. I think you touch upon a really interesting point. Going back to your point about the similarities and the connection between Algerians and Jamaicans, would you also extend that to, um, you know, like other Muslims living in Western countries, particularly um you know, like children of the diaspora, however you want to refer to them. Do you think those feelings would also extend to them? Definitely. And definitely we, we're living in interesting times. We're trying to hold on to our beliefs and life is moving very, very fast. And yeah. it's, yeah, definitely. It would definitely apply to ch children of the diaspora because, hmm, I mean, I think it applies to everyone to some extent. But when you have... There's a, when there's a cultural component and a spiritual component, you have to do a lot more soul searching. And that's mm -hmm. what I found even being a North African. Like I said, we didn't speak Arabic properly. And an Algerian cannot finish a sentence without having French in it. 100% because of 130 years of colonialism. And, and a lot of people don't know that. Algeria was known to be the land of revolutionaries in the 60s. Eldridge Cleaver from the Black Panther was exiled in Algeria. Um, Algerians had special rights in Cuba through Che Guevara because we were able to buy land in Cuba. We're one of the few people that were able to buy land in Cuba. So we're a very revolutionary people in a lot of ways in the way that we behave. And I felt that connection when I saw that in Jamaica because it turns out that during the transatlantic slave trade, it's, it's so the, his, the story goes that the most rebellious slaves were dropped off in Jamaica first because wow. they couldn't manage them. And Jamaican themse Jamaicans themselves will tell you that. Yeah, and they dropped off the most rebellious slaves and were the most rebellious and were the most resilient and so on and so forth. So That's I so think, interesting. yeah, the, the, the spirit of rebellion, along with the language, the patois, because North Africans, yeah. we speak our own patois. It's brought me, made me feel a deeper connection to the land. I think we need to do an episode just on revolutionaries in Algeria. <laughs> right? I, I think so, That's too. That's so interesting. And Honestly, do you know something? Know do you know something interesting? There is a man named France Fanon. And Fanon was a psychiatrist that was sent initially to work for the French against the Algerian people. And he is from the French Caribbean. He's from Martinique. And funny enough, Fanon got to Algeria and, of course, sided on the side of the Algerian people. And he's one of our national heroes only to think that one of our national heroes is a man from the Caribbean. <laughs> That's so cool. Like all these small connections that you would never, like f for someone like myself, I would never ever have thought that would be the case. No, a lot of people don't think that. A lot of people think, okay, you know, white girl doing her thing in Jamaica, it's nice, but the yeah, story, but it, it gets deeper. So much deeper. Absolutely. It's, I, can't, yeah. I don't think I would be able to have to do what I do in Jamaica if I didn't feel such a deep connection. Yeah, absolutely. It makes complete sense. Um, so for people listening, if you've not heard of Burgundy Roots before, I suggest you go and have a look at some of their retreats on Instagram, because I think for me, the thing that really caught my eye and makes you stand out from a lot of other, um, you know, like Muslim focused tour operators, tour companies, whatever you want to call them, um, your focus is so much on helping local businesses and, um, like avoiding all these big big resorts that don't really help the country in any way um, or your food everything is sourced locally and I just think that's so important especially now when um, Muslims are obviously traveling a whole lot more and I just think that we need to be more aware of 
you know the effect our travel practices have yeah no i agree with you i think a lot of the islamic companies or all the tour companies are interested in and we talked about this we touched on this the other day on my instagram story where you know the main concern for muslims when they travel is that they want halal food um that's yeah. the, that's the number one concern and then there's you know access to a mosque or being able to pray which is beautiful and being able to wear you know your hijab or maybe take off your hijab on a private beach mm-hmm. which is also great but i think that how do i i think we love our food as muslims i think we really love our meat <laughs> and when I you travel so <laughs> to a place like jamaica you know first of all they don't eat a lot of red meats and secondly in order for me to provide halal meat at this on this trip, I would have to slaughter an entire cow, <laughs> literally just yeah. for the guests. And I'm not about to do that. I would rather work with what is in season and with what works in the community. And so yeah, between definitely. fish and between a, a halal chicken, which we slaughter on our own, hand slaughter. I haven't not personally slaughtered the chicken by, with my own hands, but I've been thinking it's something I need to do. Um, I think part of the skills is on these retrip, on these retreats, I've cleaned and I've cooked and I've, you know, gotten down and dirty when I need to. I don't have a problem with that, but I think part of it would be good to slaughter myself because That's it would like teach me the importance. Right there. You know what I'm saying? It would teach me the importance of of what I'm doing. I'm taking a life. It's so different than going and buying a cheeseburger or chicken nuggets. Yeah. And listen, don't get me wrong, I love chicken nuggets. You know, slaughtering my own chicken with my guests. I think it brings more blessings and we really are focused on, I don't want to say giving back locally because I don't want to fall into this whole white savior mentality of how oh, I'm helping you, I'm giving back. Because trust me, the healing that you will get from coming to a place like Jamaica will be far more than what you would ever be able to give back. And the idea is really to support local businesses, communities and people by cutting the middleman. No, I won't go to a five-star resort or four-star resort if it's foreign-owned because the majority of them are not locally owned, one. Two, the majority of them do not serve locally grown food due to restrictions from the IMF and the World Bank. Jamaica has billions, over a billion dollar debt, if I'm not mistaken, but certainly millions of dollars to pay back. And one of the ways that they're they're paying back is through that. Um, through importing local goods that they grow in their own countries. So on the island, you know, you will eat bananas from Mexico, you will eat mangoes from Nicaragua, but you won't find it's very difficult to get it local because the the farmers can't compete. The farmers cannot compete with American prices. That's incredibly sad. Very. You know how many dairy farms have closed in Jamaica? How many farmers are out of business? Because they don't have the money to keep these farms going because they can't compete with foreign prices and it's just a it's, it's a cycle isn't it because they'll never get out of that debt then you don't they'll only only get worse well you don't exactly you go through slavery and then you go through post-colonialism and then you're expected to just get back on your feet it's just not the case yeah when you're starting at like minus 10 yes of course and look at haiti for example haiti was the first country in in the americas that got its independence in 1804 When Haiti got its independence, it had to pay France every month or every year a certain amount of money for the losses. This is how much money we could have made from enslaving you guys through sugarcane, through coffee, through this and that. And do you know that Haiti recently stopped paying for for that debt? And I'm not talking recently 50 years ago. I'm talking just a few years ago. Haiti stopped paying for their their, their freedom from slavery. Yeah, right. I, I remember that actually. 
It's crazy. It's mad. <laughs> it makes it's, your it's, blood it's, boil. It's madness. And then you go to a place like Jamaica where the people are so vibrant. And I know when people think Jamaica, like I said, they think a little weed, they think a cold beer, and Yaman, no problem, no problem. Well, guess what? There's plenty of problems. And when you travel off resorts and you get to talk to local communities and visit them, and yeah, you could take some Instagrammable photos and put that on your Instagram. That's great. But that's not what this trip is about. This trip is dedicated to working with local communities hand in hand. And, you know, let me give you an example. I hired this one brother recently. He's new to the Burgundy Roots team. I couldn't pay him very much, but I was able to pay a sufficient amount. And, uh, you know, the, the brother lost his job prior to, um, prior to, uh, to, to coming on the retreat. So it kind of worked out, alhamdulillah. He was able to work with us for a week, proved himself. He was amazing. So I was able to pay him whatever I could pay him. But guess what? Through that, one of the brothers that came on the trip, a brother that came from America with his family, you know what he did for him? He talked to him on the retreat. Everyone got to know everyone because we're all family. He enrolled him for free at a Stanford University coding program online and sent him a MacBook Air for free. Oh, no way. Incredible. And I said, subhanAllah, how people are connecting through that. Yeah, that's amazing. So much good coming from it. Yes, to see these little things remind me of this is the bigger, that this is the vision. The vision is not to, to, to duplicate a big um, resort opening and who knows, Puerto Rico or this and that. This is not what I'm looking for. Because things become too easy when you're on a resort. It's an island within an island. And yeah. I know that people travel to escape. But my trip is about, is, is about the opposite. You travel to become present with yourself. I, th- I think your, your retreats are about immersing yourself in this culture. Rather than escaping, it's about immersing yourself into something. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of people want to come to Jamaica, but they don't want the Jamaicans. They're looking yeah, I think for the, that's true of many countries, actually. Yeah, absolutely. They're looking for the pretty beaches, but uh, I'll take my local dose as long as it makes me feel comfortable in my skin. Right, yeah. But anything more than that is uncomfortable, and I didn't pay to be uncomfortable. It is very sad, because if you think about it, you're a prisoner in your own land. There's certain beaches in Jamaica that yeah. the, the locals are fighting for because they're trying to sell them off to resorts. They're trying to build resorts on them. and. Yeah. That's, that's a problem. It's, it's a big problem because, first of all, as Muslims, we have to be respectful of the earth and respectful of everybody. And we don't come in to deplete. We come in to, 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 to have enrich. a positive, to enrich, to be enriched and to enrich. And yeah. so it's funny because we, the, the, we have pictures. When we go on these retreats, listen, tourists take pictures of us. Because no one is used to seeing a delegation of, say, 10 to 15, 20 Muslim women when, when I was having my all-women's retreats or mixed retreats of Muslims. The typical, you know, tourist you, you, you'll expect in Jamaica is either someone from North America who's going to go to his retreat, uh, to his resort, and, you know, they're ready. They've got cold beers on the bus on the way to the resort when they land. It's yeah. a little different for us, and so that also forces the local community to treat us differently. Because they're like, well, why, why aren't you at a resort? What are you doing here up in Irish town? Did you really hike an hour to come see us in the mountains? Because there's no, <laughs> you can't get there by car. I remember when we right. went to Rasta camp to visit this Rasta community, they said we, had, we were the biggest delegation that's ever been, that's ever visited them ever. And how many of you were there? We were a group of 30. And that was the biggest. And I had, you know, people coming from Egypt, uh, of various backgrounds. 
Yemenis, Pakistanis, Indians, Black Americans, uh, Jamaicans, um, you name it, Palestinians, Saudi Arabians, even had to try to get a visa to come in. Alhamdulillah, they were allowed in. It was great. But it's, you know, on my very first trip, I was, I took these girls to, a tr and, uh, we were on our way to the masjid and couldn't find a mosque. So we stopped by this Rasta man. He was a, he was an artist and he had pictures of Malcolm X and things. So, so we asked, I said, listen, where's the mosque? And he looks at me and he goes, you're Muslim? And I guess the way he acted, he kind of caught me off guard. I was a little, I wasn't sure what to say because I, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a bad thing to be a Muslim or a good thing. Right. So he looks at me, he says, you're Muslim? I said, yes, I am. And he looks at me for a little longer and he goes, I love Muslims, you know. <laughs> I was like, good, <laughs> phew, nice. He goes, I love Muslims because everywhere you go, you just stand against the system and you rebel against the system and you dress funny and you look funny and we love it. <laughs> He's like, I myself, I'm a Rasta Muslim, a Rasmus. And I wow. said, what is that? And that apparently, yeah, when I spoke to the imam afterwards, there is such a thing as Rasta Muslims. They so are, he wasn't making it up? No, he wasn't making this up. And apparently they exist and they're there and they keep the Rastafarian culture while embracing yeah. traditional Islamic tenets. How interesting. Right. And even when I asked Brother Rashid, who I did many retreats with, I said to him, well, what do you tell Rastas who convert to Islam? Do you guys pressure them or force them to cut off their locks? Because, you know, sometimes someone converts to Islam and they'll be quick to tell them. You need to drop this and drop that and don't do this and don't do that. And so I said, do you force them to cut off their locks? And he said something very profound. He said to me, it's better to break the rules than to break the hearts. Because if you break the hearts, then there's no one to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wow. And I said, okay, I like this understanding of Islam. I like this. And you'd be surprised. People don't trouble Muslims in Jamaica. It's, I think, one of the freest and best places to be Muslim in the world is probably Jamaica. There's a very big religious tolerance in Jamaica, especially if you become a Muslim and you do good in the community. Nobody troubles you. And mind you, this is uh, a country that has a reputation of boasting the highest number of Christian churches per square mile in the world. <laughs> Oh, really? Absolutely. They say if you want to, as oh, a joke in Jamaica, if you want to open up a business, open up a church. I consider it, but I can't. <laughs> I'm busy with burning the roots. No, but no lie. It's, it's, it's a real thing. That's really interesting. Going back to the Muslim community, like how big would you say it is? Is it, is it growing or is it still quite small in number? I hear it's growing steadily. I hear there's about anywhere between six to 8,000 Muslims in the community. Right. And you will find a, a mosque in every parish. So whether it's okay. St. Elizabeth, whether there's a mosque in every little province, there's 12 oh. places of worship. Would you say that they are mainly converts or are they mainly migrants who have, um, or children of migrants? Oh, I would say converts. Most oh, definitely. Okay. Oh, yeah, most definitely converts. I've seen a couple of um, brothers coming from India. Like I've seen some Gujarati brothers. It's funny, every once in a, every once in a while, I'll see a Gujarati brother, a group of Gujarati brothers doing their little tabliki jamaat thing. But oh, for, wow, yeah, it's kind of cute. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? I mean, I know what I'm doing here. But, right. I tell you, we, they get like during Ramadan, they bring hafaz from Malaysia, from Indonesia and Libya. Even we have this one brother in the community. He sent his two sons to become hafaz, hafaz al-Quran. They did that. their training here in Toronto. And the goal is for them to go back to Jamaica and to teach the community. 
So most certainly okay. I would say it's predominantly converts. And I mean, I never got to tell you even how the, the, the retreats began because after that, that trip that I was telling you about, the, the second trip I took, which was really the first trip in my heart, um, after that second trip, I wanted to go back the following year because I said, oh, there's no way I'm, not, I'm going anywhere else. I'm going back to Jamaica. And you know what? The retreat started because I posted a Facebook status. I didn't really have Instagram at the time. I posted a Facebook status and I said, hey, anybody who wants to visit the Muslim and Arasta community in Jamaica, roll through. We'll be in the countryside doing this and that. Let me know. And you know what? I had seven girls show up, seven girls and two children. Some of them I oh, knew, cool. some of them I didn't know. They came on the trip. We had a blast. And I remember sitting. At that time, we, we, we were renting a three-bedroom house deep in the country. And I remember sitting with them and they, I said, I like doing this. This is fun. And they're like, why don't you do it again? Do another one. I said, really? No. And I was like, yeah, why not? Nothing, nothing can stop me from doing this. And you know what? Sure enough, four months later, five months later, I had another 12 girls. That was my first official yoga retreat. We were called Sip of Love Retreats at the time. And then rebranded wow. to Burgundy Roots in the past year and a half. <laughs> so that's how it started. That's amazing that you, you literally had a Facebook post and people were like, yeah, we'll come with you. <laughs> right. And you know, I think it's because I had been writing about my travels for quite a few years. So oh, people, okay. people had an idea of where I was, my traveling style, my experiences, my stories. And so when I put out a retreat, they were like, okay, cool, let's, let's try this. Going back to, you mentioned earlier, like the halal travel industry. And um, a few days ago, you had an Insta story asking people... Um, what was it again? You were asking people where they would like to go? Right, different things. What they considered a halal vacation and um, would they only right, consider visiting Muslim countries? I was surprised. 20% said yes, only Muslim countries. 80% said no, we're open to any country. Uh, okay, and then I, I think we got into a conversation. We were talking about um, what, what I kind of perceive as one of the problems with the halal travel industry is that a lot of the emphasis is on food. Um, so people seem to be turned off if they find out that there's no halal food available. Would you say that's the case? Is that your experience too? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, alhamdulillah, our guests are pretty diverse. I mean, first of all, not all our guests eat halal. Uh, the ones that don't eat, uh, the ones that strictly eat halal. I mean, in my experience, alhamdulillah, they were very flexible. If there wasn't halal, because on the road and restaurants in Jamaica, they don't, there's no, they don't have halal. Yeah. On the road, but they were very happy to have fish or vegetables or anything like that. But I do find that a lot of travelers, even through my post and what certain uh, certain things people were saying was, well, I definitely need food, 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 right. halal, 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 food, food, food. Yeah. Because I remember a few years ago, so I posted a on our website, I posted a guide to visiting Finland um, to see the Northern Lights. So like at first we had like a huge interest. We weren't like offering a trip or anything. It was more of just a guide in case people want to go. Um, and like, so we got loads of messages from people saying, oh yeah, like I've always wanted to go. This is my dream. Um, what's like the food like? <laughs> so I said, um, well, basically it's impossible to get halal food in within Helsinki. I think um, they order it in because you're not, by law, they're not allowed to slaughter in the halal way. And there are so few Muslims anyway that they order it in from other countries. And it's quite old, like it's not fresh meat. Right. Um, but if, you're, if you go to Lapland, which is where you, where you see the Northern Lights, you don't get any halal food at all. 
um so your only options are fish or like going vegetarian and that was just such a turn off for people that just put them right off the trip and I was really really surprised because you don't go to see the northern lights to eat a burger (laughs) you know well you don't that's not right and I think you don't go to always be in your comfort zone and what I mean by comfort zone I'm not saying don't wear your hijab go to a place where they don't like hijab or things like that I mean it's nice to be challenged it's nice to okay there's no halal meat what are we doing let's improvise fish cool yeah exactly vegetables cool I mean noting the the fact that our prophet was a semi-vegetarian himself I think that's you know that's our sunnah that's the way we should be living anyway I feel like maybe this is partly because um, I think like all these halal resorts and things like that, even even like Dubai, everything's only happened within the last 15 to 20 years. And maybe people just want to get it out, out of their system. Probably. Do you think? I think so. I think also it's, it's, a, it's a North American thing. We love the idea of um, going to a place and being treated like kings and queens, you know, or I mean, at least having the same standards. to eat what you want and not have to right. worry about it. Right, but sometimes it's Which like, okay, that's understandable. But to, to what, at what cost? What did you really learn from that journey? You worked right. hard all year to try to go on vacation and you're telling me you're just going to go to a place just so you can eat all In kinds of different or, foods. Yeah. You know, it just seems a little... I, personally, I think it's a little bit of a waste of money because I know yeah, how hard people work to, to, to take a vacation and... I would rather take a vacation and yeah, know that there's less meat available and and that's okay. And and but yeah. you know what? There's no, a I, shift I too. Agree. There's I a feel shift. Like they sacrifice the experience. Absolutely. Sorry, carry on. No, I, was, I agree with you. They sacrifice the experience. But I'm starting to see a shift within. Well, I wouldn't know if it's really. I mean, I felt personally within the people that answered my survey, and I had over a thousand answers per survey, uh, per question I was asking. I well. I, at least the majority of people of my followers on Instagram were very much, no, for me, halal is um, eating fish. For me, halal is eating vegetables. And for me, halal is discovering new cultures and things like that. I'll get the one, two random person who will say we should have gender segregations on retreats and we should, you know, I'm all about food. All I care about is food. But uh, I would say 80% of the people I I agreed with. but Uh, Because I remember I read some of the answers you posted um, do you save your highlights in case people want to have a look? I need to save it. This one I need to post. Because I found the the range of answers you got were actually quite good because you you literally had everybody in there, right? Right. I, I had people say, I don't do anything haram in my life. <laughs> it was just, you always get the funny ones that are... Um, um, no, we, I had a good range. I had a very good range of people. It was It was just interesting to see what people are interested in when they travel some people are okay to go to complete non-muslim countries we're talking about you know colombia cuba even the caribbean it's very different i had someone try to tell me oh you shouldn't phrase it like that why would you assume that all muslim countries are the same i've been to morocco and malaysia and they're different i'm like uh try going to tobago i've been to over 10 muslim countries yes of course they're different malay culture is very different from moroccan culture but there's one thing that connects us it's islam and yeah, so you're you're never a complete outsider. You're not really out of your comfort zone. Absolutely, you're not. You're not at all. <laughs> so I completely agree. It's interesting. I mean, I don't even know myself how I feel about. <clears throat> I think I was reading an article about halal resort opening somewhere in the Caribbean, and I think it's beautiful. It's a great initiative. But feeling how I feel, I think the concept of resorts bothers me. 
whether you can throw, you know, a kufi on it or not. To me, the idea of excessive luxury, five, six different restaurants, not stepping yeah. out to mingle with local communities, uh, probably eating food that is definitely not grown in, in local communities. Something about that just makes me feel like that's not... It, it makes you feel uncomfortable. It does. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not right. I think we should, as Muslims, we should be traveling the world. And that's when you have these conversations with people. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. You know, because I'm based in the UK and and people kind of always joke that British people will go on holiday to Spain and they'll just stick to um, other British people. So they'll have their own beaches. They eat fish and chips there. They don't really interact with the locals. And I don't know, I sometimes think that we're kind of becoming like that too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we're not really willing to... I don't know, maybe maybe it's because we... I, I mean, I'm talking specifically about Western Muslims right now. Maybe it's partly because we live in the West and we're always amongst non-Muslims. And perhaps, I don't know, perhaps people feel that safety amongst Muslims. But I really, really think that... Um, I don't know, there's so much we can learn from going to other places. Like, I remember when I went to Vietnam, so I spent, like, five weeks there, something like that. Um, and I remember being really nervous, thinking, I don't know what these people are going to be like. I don't know how they're going to react, because it's not exactly a religious kind of community. Like, whatever religion, they're not they're not particularly religious. And I just thought, because I, I'm so obviously a Muslim, I wear a scarf, I didn't know how they would react. And I was so, so pleasantly surprised, like people's reaction was the complete opposite of what I expected because I had people um, coming up to me and asking me why I'm wearing the scarf, but not in an, an, an so I can't say the word, antagonistic way. Mm -hmm. It was more just genuine, genuine curiosity. Um, and then I would always get old women coming up to me saying, oh, I love your dress or whatever. Um, and it just really opened up, it opened my eyes because you just get the impression when you're living in the West that everybody hates us. Yeah, and <laughs> it's know, not like, the case. Wherever so we go, they just hate us everywhere. Exactly. And it really is not the case. But you'll never know that unless you get out of your comfort zone. Thank you. Unless you step out of a resort and you walk down the streets, even in Jamaica, you know, I hear some of the guests talk to, um, sorry, some of the guests talk to the locals and Again, like you said, they don't mean any harm, but they want to know. Like guests will come up, uh, locals will come up to you and say, why you wear that? Aren't you hot? You know, are you going right. to a wedding? You know, why do you Muslims eat like this? Why do you Muslims do that? It's, it's very common. I remember going to the Bob Marley Museum and it was a man, that, a young man that worked there. And I walked in, I was saying good morning to everybody, smiling and ordering my favorite smoothie. And he said something to me, like he said, you you smiling because you look like you know the truth about life. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, man, you smile, you look happy, and whatever you do, I want to follow it. So what, oh, wow. what is it that you follow? Well, I said, I'm a Muslim. He said, next time you come, bring me a book. I said, oh, okay. that's amazing. And I didn't go for like a year and a bit. I didn't see him for a little while. And um, sure enough, just a few months ago, I went back in May. And I brought a Quran with me and I brought along this other book about science and Islam. We know that one colorful book, that awesome one about science and Islam. I forget what it's called, but <laughs> right. it's small. The Dawah, so, you know, that one's just amazing. When it came out, everyone was like, Whoa! I know which one you mean. <laughs> so, so I brought him that as well. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I said, here we go, Maurice. I didn't forget you. He goes, yo, what's up? And he took the book 
And, you know, he messaged me on WhatsApp the other day and he commented, he said, I've been reading it and my love it, my love it. Now I understand why you're smiling and thank you so much for that. Oh, wow. And people are so receptive and so open to it. And this is not an evangelical mission by any means. It's just... No, it's just pure interaction. It's just, just love. genuine interaction with people. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you wouldn't necessarily see that. So again, the question is, and I ask this to people on my, on my Instagram, is are you willing to pay more? Because I'll tell you the truth, from an organizer perspective, retreats, these tours cost more than... Uh, we, can't, we simply cannot compete with airlines that have deals with, with hotels. Yeah. We can't do it. I mean, the guest houses we go to are not going to say, you know what, we'll pay $500 of e- off of each traveler's ticket <laughs> to get yeah. you guys to come on this trip. That's $15,000. <laughs> yeah, you understand? So the question is, are people willing to pay a little bit more, an extra $500, an extra $1,000 to get a full experience? Or are they content just doing the all-inclusive thing and maybe one excursion or two? Yeah. But I think when you travel and you know that every single guest house we go to, they know the owners. Every single place we go, whether it's the Rasta community, the Maroon community, Stush in the Bush Organic Farm, they are welcomed into the community by the locals. And they know exactly where their money is going. You can't pay, you can't put a price on something like that. You can't. It's impossible. You feel content. You actually feel like you're positive. You're You're positively contributing to the world while absorbing the energy that you're receiving and the hospitality and the love. So it's just, it's very, what's the word, euphoric? Is that, yeah, it's kind of euphoric. It's a feeling of, wow, you're just, it's an overdose of beauty. Yeah. It's, it's, it's powerful. I think you're really inspiring, you know, just because <laughs> I think on Instagram, often things look amazing, but they actually turn out to be quite shallow. But I think with what you're doing, so much thought has gone into it and, just the intention behind everything is something really inspiring oh you're so kind no thank you i take that as a very big compliment and you know it's fun it's fun it's fulfilling i'm i'm actually trying to transition out of teaching and do this full-time and do these retreats full-time inshallah employ more people work with more people and i'm not talking just employ i'm talking about you know you have a stake in the company and you you're part of it it's not just come it's not just feed a man for the day type of mentality yeah that's not what we were looking for we're looking to build long-lasting relationships and i think between jamaica and morocco where i feel home in both places i like to pick places where i feel home because a few people were like oh my god you need to add a bunch of other trips and i said i need i need to go and meet people and connect with the community it's not a matter of let me just book this hotel and book this tour company and get them to be the tour operator and charge you guys an extra you know five hundred dollars on top of it so i make my profit no it's not that. It's you very much have to connect and and feel it and work with the people. And it's not like I'm going to start a new destination and, and not go back to Jamaica. No. If you're bringing $50,000, $100,000 of business a year to a specific guest house, you don't just walk away from that. It's it's in a manner. And people, this girl wanted to come on my retreat. And I, I like to interview people before they come on the trip. And I said to her, why are you coming? She said, my father died not too long ago. And I said to myself, subhanAllah, you know, people are going through all kinds of things. And with the money, it's in a manna. It's not just a matter of I fulfilled X, Y, and Z, whatever is on the schedule. You have to be happy. Now go home. People are looking for healing. People are looking for some kind of spiritual heights. They're looking. 
And when they come on these trips, that's what they look for. It's fun. We have very humble travelers and they're very gracious and they understand. If there's a delay on the bus, if there's goats cr crossing the street, if, you know, Rasta priest is not available. You know, we had to wait 20 minutes right. for the priest because the priest was, was taking a bath. <laughs> so what do we get? Rush the priest, he has to take his bath. <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're, I tell them, I make it clear to them. I said two things. One, you're on island time. Two, you're traveling to Jamaica with me. I am not traveling with you. So please trust the process. <laughs> I promise you, I got you. And that's how you know it's authentic, right? When you you have to wait for someone to take their bath. <laughs> you have an, you know, you're having an authentic travel experience. This doesn't get more authentic than that. It's like, okay, well, I'm just having a bath. On that note, <laughs> before we wrap up, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. What would you say out of all the places you've been to, because you've traveled widely, um, other than Jamaica, had the biggest impact on you? Ooh. I'm torn between. I'm torn between Egypt, Cairo, and Damascus. Uh, Egypt is, I mean, listen, I've gone to Cairo maybe five summers in a row. And um, Cairo is just beautiful for anyone who needs to go to Cairo. I mean, listen, it's like Cairo is an old lady who's partied too much in her life, but is also trying to be spiritual. It's holding <laughs> on to whatever beauty might have had back in the day. It's still, still a little crying. bit of a party animal. Cairo is like a little bit of everything most beautiful mosques the most amazing food uh, people are really cool but you want to make sure that you don't get hustled because you will very much get hustled damascus is more of this calmer calmer lady that she is um just very refined and just beautiful the mosques are beautiful the people are beautiful the food is delicious it it, it operates by its own rhythm and funny enough i might i might want to say damascus because of all the places I've ever traveled to in the world, the only one that I left weeping, and when I tell you, I don't, I weep, but I cried so much when I left Damascus. And funny enough, I mean, sadly enough, or ironically enough, it was, that's right after I left, the war broke out. But right. I cried when I left Syria. I don't know if I cried because I had a feeling I was never going to go back or I wouldn't go back in a very long time. But when I left Damascus, yeah. I cried because I was there for six months and I grew so much on that trip and learned so much from it. You know, I know so many people who have said the same thing. Like, I, I, I mean, my sister spent like a year there and she came back a different person. She changed so much. And even like her group of friends that she was with, everybody, um, yeah, they like completely changed. I wish, because I missed out on Damascus. We had planned on going the year that the war obviously broke out so we weren't able to but inshallah one day and prayers obviously for the safety of all its people i've really enjoyed talking to you Afa. i think we'll have to have you on again inshallah i, I really enjoyed this, this as ever thank you for listening we really love it when people give us their feedback and share their thoughts with us you can find us on twitter at s footsteps or instagram facebook at sacred footsteps Thank you.